Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. Do you have a right to your opinion? Usually we say this to other people when we're just frustrated that they're disagreeing with us and we've given up on persuading them. But is there a sense in which people actually have a right to believe the things they believe? And if so, how far does that right extend? So that's going to be the topic for today's discussion. And the focal point for the discussion is going to be this article by W.K. Clifford, The Ethics of Belief which is frequently assigned in undergraduate philosophy classes, and also a little bit on a second article by William James called The Will to Believe, also very frequently assigned and paired with Clifford's article. My guest today is Tyler Paytas. How's it going, Tyler? Great, Spencer. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, we met at the Rocky Mountain Ethics Congress in, I believe, 2011. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. There's a big, big conference that CU Boulder puts on every year, and I hope we're going to be able to make it to it this year. And you see, you are a professor at, is it Australian Catholic University? Yeah, Australian Catholic University uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, title is uh, Research Fellow, basically, because we're a research-heavy institute, so not, not doing a lot of teaching. But yeah, that's, that's where I've been since uh, 2016. Okay, Research Fellow then. Yep. Cool. I'm the same thing at the moment at Wuhan University, but as you know, waiting out the uh, COVID-19 thing at my parents' house in Idaho, but really eager to get back to China. So I guess I'm going to start off by asking you this. I know we, I guess, are kind of kindred spirits in, in philosophy and have similar approaches to things, and I, I knew from talking to you at one point in the past that we both felt pretty positively toward this paper by Clifford, The Ethics of Belief. So I want to ask you why you think it's important and why this whole issue and his debate with James is interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, it gets down to the, the basics, you know, the, the fundamental normative questions that we all have to face every day. I have to decide how I'm going to live my life, and I have to form beliefs about that. And one thing that seems, you know, as a starting point to be important is I should not believe things if I don't have good reason to believe them, if I don't have good evidence for them. But if one of the, the goals of my life is to be an excellent person, then there might be situations where believing without really good evidence might be conducive to my being a just person or, or exhibiting other virtues. And so then we do have this conflict between epistemic norms and the goal of being a virtuous person and to me that's something that is it's both philosophically interesting but it's also personal in the sense that i have to figure out my answer to this in order to live my life so that's really what got me into this this topic now i'm curious what you think about this a lot of people dislike the article because of its style, because of the way that it's written. It came out in 1877, and it's got this high Victorian prose. Maybe I should even read a few excerpts from it. It's really high-flown and different from what we come to expect in analytic philosophy nowadays. What's your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes older, older pieces might be not as exciting or a little bit off-putting if um, you're not used to reading in that style. I do a lot of work in history of philosophy, so I'm used to reading stuff that's written in, in different older styles. So it, that doesn't really bother me. But of course, in general, I think that can be 
an issue, especially with, with students who it's easier to digest things that are sort of written in language that you're used to. I was thinking more from the perspective of like other academic philosophers who are used to this sort of more dry prose, whereas uh, Clifford is very sort of hortatory and he's like sort of full of passion at times can seem even a little overbearing. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. I love when philosophy is written with passion and intensity. I think sometimes he's, he's a little bit hyperbolic, but I mean, that could be done even in a, with dry prose, just sort of overstating. I think some of his, his claims are overstated, but in terms of writing with some passion and intensity, I think the more of that, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I think much, way too much of contemporary academic philosophy is dry and boring and excessively so and to the detriment of the profession. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. James, too, is also a very good writer. Yeah. Have you read any of any of his other papers? I have not. I have not either. I have not either. I think it does work very well as a standalone piece. There was an interesting article that I sent you by Nodelman, and I can't remember the second author's name, where they really tried to contextualize it in terms of, of some of Clifford's other lesser-known works, and that's interesting. But I'm going to just sort of plow ahead and, and treat this as sort of a standalone piece. Yeah, that, I, I took a look at that paper and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it seemed like there's, you know, like a actual a field of Clifford scholarship, which I didn't even know was a thing. But yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely. So Clifford's article is famous for two things. And, and one of the things it's famous for is this example, this very, very famous example of the ship owner. Maybe I should even like read some of that just to, to give you a sense of the style which we were talking about. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, so he says, a ship owner was about to send to sea an immigrant ship. He knew that she was old and not over well built at the first, that she had seen many seas and climes and often had needed repairs. Doubts had been suggested to him that possibly she was not seaworthy. These doubts preyed upon his mind and made him unhappy, and he thought that perhaps he ought to have her thoroughly overhauled and refitted, even though this should put him to great expense. Before the ship sailed, however, he succeeded in overcoming these melancholy reflections. He said to himself that she had gone safely through so many voyages and weathered so many storms that it was idle to suppose that she would not come safely home from this trip also. He would also put his trust in Providence, which could hardly fail to protect all these unhappy families that were leaving their fatherland to seek for better times elsewhere. He would also dismiss from his mind all the ungenerous suspicions about the honesty of builders and contractors. In such ways, he acquired a sincere and comfortable conviction that his vessel was thoroughly safe and seaworthy. He watched their departure with a light heart and benevolent wishes for the success of the exiles in their strange new home that was to be, and he got his insurance money when she went down mid-ocean and told no tells. So that gets you that gets you immediately interested in what he's going to say. Thoughts on, on that opening example? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great example. It's It's certainly vivid, and I think it it sort of makes the point in a pretty clear way. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's quite good. Well, I want to nitpick it a bit. There are a couple of things that bother me about it. One is that it doesn't say anything about him being surprised 
when the ship went down or hearing the news that the ship went down, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of makes me wonder, did he really acquire, I mean, he says he acquired a sincere belief, but then the basis of, by which he inquired into the fitness of his ship is so thin that you kind of wonder, at least I kind of wonder, did this guy, is, can I really suppose this guy sincerely believed everything was fine here? Right, right. Yeah, that's a fair point. If he really believed everything was fine, he would have had, uh, there would have been an element of surprise there. But I take it like that would be something that Clifford should have added and then the example could, could still work. Yeah. And the other thing that I have a caveat with or I have a quibble with is, and he got his insurance money when she went down in mid-ocean and told no tells. That makes the guy worse than he has to be, doesn't it? Like, right, right. That definitely does. Um, yeah, that's just an extra little extra there that's not really relevant, but it does make you sort of think that this guy's a, a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. So he's a bit putting his thumb on the intuitive scales here with some of this. Nonetheless, the basic point, we agree, like, there's a there's a basic point here, which is even if he had confessed and gone to jail for the rest of his life and all of that, we still think like he did something like really seriously wrong, really seriously wrong. And he wants to generalize from this to uh, a broader principle. So he says, what's wrong? What's wrong with this? And, and it's that he had no right to believe on the evidence that was before him. So he is immediately imposing a limit on the idea that we have a right to believe certain things. So our right to believe is limited by the evidence that's before us. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just think it's a, it's a good example to get people to start seeing sort of, which it puts you in the frame of mind to see what the potential problem is. And then the interesting question becomes, okay, if it's true in this example that that person did something wrong, like how far does that extend? And then the question is, does it extend as far as, as Clifford's ultimately? Yeah, that's right. Say that it does. That's right. And, and he, he wants it to uh, extend quite far. So, you know, what's interesting here is toward the beginning of the paper, he hits on the idea of, of moral luck or comes quite close to hitting on it. You notice that? Because he says, yeah. if the ship had made it safely across the ocean, he would have been just as guilty. So he says that the ship owner would be no less guilty. He would be guilty to the same degree, to the same degree, because whether or not it sunk was out of his hands. And in fact, we could hold this guy pretty guilty if he was 90% sure that it would make it across. That's like a, a completely outrageous risk to take with the lives of 200 people. Yeah, so it does It does anticipate this idea of, of moral luck or... I guess it would be um, a denial of moral luck because it would be saying that, or would it be would it be saying that the guy he's if the ship made it across that would not exonerate him. So you couldn't sort of get lucky in the same way that say you know the drunk driver who happens to not hit anybody and still gets home safely. We don't want to say that he's as blameworthy in that sense. He's kind of morally lucky. Whereas in this case on Clifford's view, um, you can't get lucky in that way because once you believe without sufficient evidence and you put people at risk that way, regardless of the outcome, you're still equally culpable. Right. That's what I mean. So it's, he's denying moral luck, but he sees the issue. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, what I think of right away is just this idea of, of a sort of non-consequentialist deontological approach where, you know, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, you've done something wrong and that wrongness is there either way. Yeah. But could be, could it be a, an expected utility view though he's got here? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's sort of, sometimes he talks as if the, the ultimate justification is sort of the, the long-term consequences of everybody adhering to sound epistemic practices or sound epistemic policies as opposed to violating them. So yeah, it could be expected utility in the long run. Right. Yeah. So I think he's got sort of a mix of deontological and consequentialist seeming considerations here. And it's not clear to me that they're totally reconciled in this one article. So if you wanted to do that, this is one area where it might be good to look into his other articles and go into the, the Clifford scholarship here. Because it does seem to me like these are some untied threads here. Yep. So, so he's got this idea that you can't sever belief from, at, from action. Remember that comes up. It's this, port, it's this point in the paper where he says, well, what if somebody has a wrong belief and then like just doesn't act on it? Isn't it the action that we think is morally wrong, not the belief? And his response is that, wait, if you have a belief, then you will act on it. Otherwise, it's not a, it's not a belief. And any belief that is detached from action in that way is, is like not sincerely held or something like that. So what do, you th- what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think it's true to an extent. And in a lot of cases, I mean, I don't think it would be true in a literal sense across all beliefs. I think that there are some beliefs a person might have where it just really doesn't have any bearing on any actions that they take. Of course, those would probably be less important beliefs. But yeah, I think the general point he's making that often your beliefs are going to have major impact on determining what actions you take, that that seems true uh, in general, and it's an important point. So if somebody, for example, I think somebody's breaking into my house when it's uh, somebody I know and there's some circumstances that explain this. If I genuinely am convinced on good reason that this is a, a threat to my life and I shoot and kill this person, that seems like it would exonerate me. Whereas if I'm, if I'm negligent, right, if I'm negligent in like I should have known that you were coming back at this time or something like that, or I'm not in the right state of mind for reasons for which I'm responsible, that seems like I could be held blameworthy for that. Yeah, that sounds right. So how does that fit with what Clifford is saying? So I think the idea is that the evaluation of the actions in these cases is sort of like inherited from the beliefs on which the action is based. Yeah, right. And your, your state of mind and what, what's going on, yeah, what's going on in your mind is going to be highly relevant to how we evaluate the action. That seems certainly right. Um, And it also seems true that when you're in the process of gathering evidence or engaging in some sort of epistemic practice, it's fairly likely that those decisions you make in terms of how to be sensitive to evidence and how to try to figure out what you believe, there's a high likelihood in most cases that that is going to directly lead to you acting in certain ways. And so it's not as easy as saying, well, these are just my beliefs and it's all that matters is how I act. Well, 
if you're taking a lot of epistemic risks, that's probably going to lead to a lot of practical mistakes and harmful acts, potentially. And I, I take it that that's really what Clifford's getting at. Yeah, you raised this point about gathering of evidence. So it seems like when we're criticizing someone for having a bad belief, doesn't it seem like mostly what we're criticizing is their evidence gathering process, the way they've inquired to come to that belief? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it definitely varies depending on the context. So, I mean, sometimes we criticize each other or criticize other people, their beliefs, just because they they sort of, it's a failure of being able to draw the right inference. And in a way, it's kind of a, a silly criticism because there's a level of involuntariness to my drawing of inferences. And a lot of times it's just, you know, my brain just isn't working properly and it's not something that I can do about it or it wasn't sort of a, a voluntary mistake. But yeah, at other times, what we're mad about is they didn't do their due diligence. They were closed-minded. They were being dogmatic. They refused to make the effort to look at other evidence or to be open to it or to spend the time thinking about it. Um, so I guess those are just two different ways of making the criticism or of holding someone accountable for their beliefs. It could be that you're just responding to their, their failure of, of drawing the inference, but it could also be that they sort of were being closed-minded and it was their sort of voluntary refusal to engage and be open to the inquiry to, to get to the right belief. If the failure of inference literally was beyond your powers, right? If it was some really, really subtle logical error that no mathematician on earth could have noticed, then I'm inclined to say, well, yeah, that could be like a justified belief. But typically, when people make errors like that, where you're like, why didn't you see this? You're blaming them for like, you really should have thought about this more. You should have slowed down. There's some sort of bias that you haven't taken care of or something like that lurking in the background. That's my view anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's probably right. I mean, but you might be sort of giving people too much credit for being able to draw inferences well. I mean, I guess even in that case, you could say, well, look, you should have like thought more about this. Maybe you should have spent all day thinking about it, or maybe you should have spent years trying to be better at, at thinking clearly. Um, so there's going to be some degree of, of accountability. But I do think a lot of times I find myself having this initial impulse to be to, to blame someone or to have this sort of negative attitude towards them for failing to see something that just seems so obvious to me. And to them, it's like, upon reflection, it's like, okay, like, they're not good at making those kind of inferences. And maybe like, they're not fully accountable for that. Um, but I agree that that's like a less common case. And if your claim is that for the most part, what we're mad about is the person not doing their due diligence or doing their homework, I, I think that's right. There's a striking passage in which Clifford describes all of our beliefs as a kind of a collective resource. So he says this in a couple of different places. And no man's belief is in any case a private matter which concerns himself alone. Our lives are guided by that general conception of the course of things which has been created by society for social purposes. Our words, our phrases, our forms and processes and modes of thought are common property, fashioned and perfected from age to age, an heirloom which every succeeding generation inherits as a precious deposit and a sacred trust to be handled on to the next one 
not unchanged but enlarged and purified, with some clear marks of its proper handiwork. Into this, for good or ill, is woven every belief of every man who has speech of his fellows. An awful privilege and an awful responsibility that we should help to create the world in which posterity will live. By awful there, he means awesome in the modern locution. Uh, um, reaction, reaction, Tyler? Yeah, so I think there's a sense in which he's right, but I also think it's a little bit overstated. Like, obviously, what I believe a lot of times it's going to have significant effects on what I do and my interactions with other people and what I get them to believe and how we act and how we interact together. I just think it's a slight exaggeration to say that that's true of, of every belief. I think sometimes, you know, my belief is not going to have any real impact on other people. And I think that I don't have to necessarily worry for every single belief that I hold about how this is going to affect you know the community or or the human species but I, I i i accept the point as a sort of generality i think it's interesting i have mixed reactions to it so on one hand i think that you can maybe fault him for this kind of slide from going from the claim that no one man's belief is in any case a a private matter which concerns himself alone meaning no belief is entirely a private matter there's always some potential impact on someone else to what he wants to say is it's actually just one big collective resource right so it's not even at all a private matter it's entirely collective it's like doxastic communism or something yeah it just seems a little bit hyperbolic you know like i just think it yeah i think there's something to it but it's it's just a little too much and it's not not entirely true. I think he's, he's just exact. He's, he's taking a point that that is true, but just exaggerating it to the point that it seems questionable. I do like the idea, though, that trust is basically a really, really valuable resource. How can we really function at all if we don't rely on trust on some level? There's actually, I think, two different resources here that he's not careful to pull apart. And so one of them is like truth. We want to have true beliefs. We want to keep our beliefs like uncontaminated, but also like truthfulness. Our, my ability to trust you as putting forward your espoused views in good faith and all of that, that I can trust your testimony. That's somewhat different than truth, but those are two different things that we really rely on here. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is where things become complicated, at least for me, because, yeah, the, the idea of truthfulness and being able to trust each other, that's extremely important. And then that's when things get complicated with the question of, you know, is, is lying ever permissible? Because there could be cases where it seems like the immediate consequences of, of the lie are good. And then there could also be cases where, you know, the lie might actually help someone not only like avoid some immediate suffering or some immediate bad consequence, but it could help the person develop good character and become a, and it could help society become more just overall. Um, and in those sorts of cases, things become extremely complicated. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think he doesn't give enough credence to exceptions. Like sometimes there are cases when you've got competing goods and you, you have to choose and like lying might be a little bit bad, but we all agree that sometimes lying is the morally appropriate thing to do, even the morally mandatory thing to do. And so why couldn't it be that way with forming beliefs on inadequate evidence, right? Like, couldn't it 
he must accept some principle in which it's okay to do this, but he tends to leave you with the impression that he doesn't accept any exceptions. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes it's, it just comes across as, uh, as hyperbolic or a little too extreme. And yeah, this unwillingness to, to acknowledge the possibility of exceptions. But yeah, generally it's just, I think he, he takes it a little bit too far and doesn't do enough to acknowledge possible exceptions. Right. Now, speaking of taking it too far, I said that this article is famous for two things. And that one thing was the ship example that he begins with. The other thing is this uh, dictum where he says, to sum up, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. So do you think that that puts it too strong? Yeah, like, I think it's a fair summary of the paper, but that's because I think the claim that he, the claims that he makes throughout are just, they are too strong. So yeah, I would definitely reject, reject that part uh, of the claim or that summary of the paper as, as being a claim that I would endorse. Right. Well, I'm actually not sure how strong of a statement it is. Like it might be deceptive in terms of its rhetoric because you don't actually know what the bar for sufficient evidence is, right? And this is one thing that makes me wonder to what degree James and Clifford really come apart here, because he never actually says that all of your reasons for belief have to be entirely evidential and set the standard really high. He just says that you can't believe on insufficient evidence. Well, what's insufficient evidence? How much is sufficient? He doesn't really seem to get to that question. So it seems like it's a really strong statement, but then you know you push it a little and without further specification, it's not clear how strong it really is. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, the, the devil's going to be in the details in terms of, of knowing, okay, well, where do we draw the line? At what point does, does it become sufficient? Is my evidence sufficient for me to be justified in forming this belief? So that's, that's a fair point. And I do, I share the thought that maybe the disagreement with James isn't as deep as it initially seems. That being said, I think there are clear enough cases w- where the disagreement seems pretty obvious and even setting aside this concern as to well, what exactly counts as sufficient, there are cases where I'm, I'm pretty sure Clifford would say that is not sufficient and James would say that it is sufficient or that you, know, you are justified in forming this belief. And I think there is still an interesting disagreement, even if it might not be as you know, across the board as it seems. Right, yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. But a couple more things on, on Clifford first. So he doesn't define evidence. And this is actually, I think, a problem for evidentialism. Evidentialism often defined as the view that a belief is epistemically justified if and only if it is proportioned to the evidence that an agent has at a time. One kind of criticism for that is the difficulty in spelling out what evidence is. One thing you don't want to do is you don't want to say, you don't want to define evidence in terms of what we ought to believe because then you're in a circle, right? Then you're in trouble. It's got to be like sense perceptions or something like that. And then it's like, it gets really hard. It gets really hard to cash out in a way that's both substantive and apparently plausible. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, again, this is a point at which clarifying the view more would have been helpful, both with, it's, it's the same point really with regards to um, evidence and then also sufficient, like that, that just needs to be much clearer. 
certainly with regard to the sufficiency, my view is that what's at stake has to matter here, right? Like the bar for the ship owner at the beginning is really high. Like he can't just like look once and say, yeah, it looks pretty good to me. For trivial things, I can form beliefs all the time based on looking once and like, yep, the car's in the garage. That's enough for me for right now, you know. So toward the end of the paper, Clifford makes this interesting suggestion that we should aim toward having a certain kind of culture and tradition, one that that maximizes our ability to base our beliefs on evidence or, or something, something along those lines. It's, it's an interesting suggestion. He has this idea, and I, I think it's really striking because he's advocating for this hard-nosed sort of view that our beliefs have got to be based on evidence, and yet he's got this religious, he talks about our sacred duty to uphold this tradition and enhance it. And I wonder if you think there is a tension there, or how can we make sense of this idea of this tradition of, of upholding evidence? Yeah, so I think the word sacred does seem kind of problematic if it has this implication or this connotation of, you know, this is something that can never be questioned. You might think that for Clifford to be consistent, he should avoid putting it that way Maybe he could just say something like, this should be like our central tradition, or this is a really important tradition, and then just add the caveat that even the tradition itself should be put under scrutiny, at least occasionally or at regular intervals or something. But I think he could also just say that the commitment to truth is the one thing that we never have grounds to question. I mean, maybe that's what he would want to say. I'm not sure if that's paradoxical or not. I honestly don't know. What do you think? Is that is there something inherently contradictory about saying, you know, there is one thing that we should never question, and then that and that's that truth is the most important thing. I don't know. I mean, why is that different from saying there's one thing we should never question, and it's that Muhammad is the prophet of God or something like that? I I just don't think it could, that can hold muster for Clifford. I don't think that there's a contradiction as far as applying Clifford's dictum to itself right? Because it could be that we really do have good evidence that he's got the right view here, right? As far as how we should form our beliefs. But I I wonder about like a tradition that's upheld, even if you get rid of the word sacred, it's like we have to feel a certain way to like preserve this tradition. Can we really take a completely critical stance to it and uphold it? So I don't think there's like a logical contradiction, but as I imagine this trying to work out like in a society over time, I wonder if there's like a, a pragmatic self-defeat problem here. Because you would not be able to like step outside of it and, and, and examine it. I couldn't stop and think, okay, should I keep going with this tradition once it becomes too ingrained? Is that the, the worry? Well, I just think a tradition where you've got an entire society of people who have this tradition, whatever that tradition is, to, to make it a tradition is to kind of put it on a pedestal where you don't subject it to your most withering criticism as you would something that isn't the tradition. Otherwise, I'm not sure in what sense it's a tradition if it's not treated any differently than anything else. Yeah, well, what if we say this is our tradition and it's really important, but we're going to set aside one week a year where we really re-examine it and see if we want to stay committed to it? Yeah, that helps a little bit, but what about the rest of the year, you know? Well, what if you make it, um, we're going to spend an hour a day re-examining it. 
maybe, maybe, maybe there's some balance that can be struck here. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I'm not someone who's big on like sort of having like a a dogmatic sacred thing that you can never question. But I do think I do think it's possible to have traditions without it being the case that you could never realistically, you know, take a step back and and examine and re-examine your commitment to it and see if this is what you want to uphold. I mean, it's going to vary from context to context and like what kind of tradition we're talking about and what it involves. There's certainly going to be cases where you're right that it's like not realistic to think it's the thing has become so ingrained that it's no longer realistic to think that people can actually get critical distance from it. But I don't think that that's like a necessary feature of traditions that they can't ever be sort of critically examined by those who are part of it. Okay. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. And the last thing about Clifford is this bit at the end where he says that beliefs that go beyond experience are acceptable in as much as we reason inductively. And I wonder, at first this, this seems kind of ad hoc because he says go, go beyond experience, but he doesn't say beliefs that go beyond the evidence. That seems slightly cagey to me. He, his view about induction is that it relies on the, the material assumption of the uniformity of nature. Uh, right. Human Mill also thought this. I think this is wrong. C.S. Peirce argued that induction is a purely formal process that does not rely on any kind of assumptions about the uniformity of, the na of nature, which is why we could go out and conduct induction and dis discover that nature isn't uniform. In principle, we could. So I think if you take it, that view of induction, that it's purely formal, I think he can say anything that you arrive at through evidence or sensory experience is evidentially based, but he doesn't have that view. He has the view that the uniformity of nature is just a, like a material presupposition that you've got to start with to get going. And that actually complicates things for him considerably because it seems like that, that can't be questioned, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I thought, you know, when I, when I reread this and got to that part of the paper, it's like, whoa, like, how can you just say that the, the induction is no problem, assuming uniformity of nature is no problem? It does seem like it's a major exception to his general outlook of, you know, not forming beliefs without sufficient evidence. So I, based on the type of the un uniformity of nature way of understanding things, I, I also felt like this was something that I'm not sure that he can get away with without saying more. Um, but that's interesting what you said about the other way of understanding induction. Maybe that would be better for him. Yeah, that's right. So he can get away with, uh, he can avoid this problem if he takes a view of induction that does not commit him to the uniformity of nature as like a starting belief that can't be questioned. But as it is, as it actually is, once you, once you like say, oh, but there's one exception, that's ad hoc because why not another and why not another? and so on and so forth. Yeah, that, that was exactly the thought that I had. Right. Well, that's all I have for Clifford. Anything else before we turn to James now? No, I mean, I think it'll be good to get to James and then that'll you know, keep us with Clifford, really, because there's so many interesting, uh, interesting you know, conflicts between the two. James advocates for a more permissive view of belief. Uh, would you say something about that? 
Yeah, I mean, so James, of course, is famous for his, his pragmatism, um, the idea that really what justification in terms of belief amounts to is, is its effects and does it help you to solve practical problems and to live well. And that's really the way that we evaluate beliefs. It's not so much about just the evidence or it's sort of the epistemic properties. It is more about the practical. Um, obviously, uh, a radically different approach. And it, it's honestly, it's an approach that uh, I used to be very skeptical of. But now, over the past few years, I've become a lot more sympathetic to it. So James is permissive, but he isn't that permissive, right? Like he carves out pretty narrow exceptions in which it's okay to believe beyond the evidence. Isn't that right? Yeah. So, I mean, there is, there is a lot more, as I said earlier, there, I think there's more agreement between the two than you might've thought. Like James does grant that in general, we should be very cautious and not form beliefs sort of haphazardly. Um, and he grants that like scientific progress, it's a really important part of, of doing science that um, you don't just rush into a belief and you, you take your time and and you are concerned with the evidence. It's just that he thinks that there are some situations where it's really important to be able to go beyond the evidence. And I think there's something very plausible about that. Right. So what are his criteria? So he, he says it's got to be a live option for you. So you've, it's got to be, you've got to be in a situation where there are multiple possibilities of things that could be true that are what he calls live options. So things that you could you could come to see as believing, and they have to be pretty close in terms of the evidence. One can't be outrageously out of the ballpark in terms of the evidence. And it also, yeah. he also says it has to be like important. And I'm not sure I understand that stipulation. Why can't I make a pragmatic choice between two live options about something that's relatively trivial? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I hadn't really, I kind of accepted that, that, Point about it being important, or I think he said he calls it momentous. I guess I, I hadn't really scrutinized that much, but now that you bring it up, it does seem like I don't see why I shouldn't be justified in doing it for less important things. I mean, I think that the point is more powerful, and like I'm very sympathetic to it when we're talking about really momentous decisions. Maybe the thought is that there's something about you want to minimize the amount of times that you deviate from the conventional epistemic norms. And so if it's a trivial thing, then you should just stick with the epistemic norms because you don't want to fall into the trap that Clifford's worried about where you start deviating from the epistemic norms and now it kind of becomes a habit and it becomes, you sort of get further and further away and you start to develop all these bad habits. So maybe that's the reason why you should reserve it like this, this pragmatism could be like a, a tool that I could use, but only when I really, really need it, because there is a cost to it, which is that I'm sort of dabbling in the dark arts of violating epistemic norms, and I don't want that to become a habit or to sort of pervade my life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Although James would say it's not the dark arts in this case, but we generally tend to overexercise our will with choosing our beliefs anyway. I mean, that's the way in which we're flawed. It might just be a matter of prudence of, you know, staying away from the edge of not yeah. allowing the will to shape our beliefs too much. So you restrict it to the really important cases as a practical matter. 
Yeah, right. So well, I guess when I, when I use this phrase dark arts, I don't mean that it's like, it's bad. James might say that like, this isn't even bad that you're doing it, but you're doing something that like could be bad. Um, it's in this sort of category of, of potentially dangerous. And so you don't want to like be doing it more than you need to. Right. And so belief in God is like the paradigmatic example here, right? Yeah, I think I think that is the, the paradigmatic example. And yeah, like this is one that it's becoming increasingly interesting to me because for so long I had this sort of real skeptical and dismissive attitude towards theistic belief. It just seemed like, you know, the problem of evil is so compelling and it just seems like a lot of the or all of the world's religions, it seems like they were just artifacts that were created by human beings and they didn't seem to have a lot going for them in terms of, of you know, actual evidence for their truth. And so I was always very skeptical about religion, but over the past few years, especially since I've gotten into Stoicism, I've been sort of thinking more and I'm, I'm starting to be more sympathetic to the idea that you could take something on faith for the sake of making you live better. So not because it's gonna make you happy, but because it's gonna make you a more excellent person. And maybe religious belief can do that. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, the incentives are kind of perverse and like the relationship between morality and religious faith is kind of messed up because people have this idea that like, it's still a type of divine command theory. And it's also like partly motivated by self-interest because I'm trying to get into heaven and avoid hell. So I think in a lot of situations, it doesn't actually have those benefits, but I think it can in principle be the case that, okay, if I believe in some sort of higher power, or if I believe in divine providence, if I believe that the universe is truly a rational ordered place, that could maybe help me stay committed to my, my ethical principles and give me strength. And in that sort of situation, I think that there's something very plausible to be said in favor of it. Or just how about faith in humanity? faith in the idea that good will triumph over evil in the end. I think I would probably be better off if I internalized that belief, but I fear it's not true looking at the world around me. Yeah, right. No, that's a, that's a good example. It's going to help you stay motivated to try to be just and try to help people and to like not lose your moral resolve. It seems like a very good belief to have, um, even though you're right, like there's not overwhelming evidence in favor of it. Um, another example I, I've been thinking a lot about is just what value theory do you accept? And this one's interesting because at the sort of fundamental level, it's not clear how, you know, trying to figure out whether hedonism is true or not. Like, I don't feel like I'm ever going to have decisive arguments for or against or decisive evidence for or against. But the value theory that I accept now is much more like the Stoic view that virtue is this sort of supreme value and no amount of virtue should be traded off for any amount of pleasure. I believe that, and I also think that believing that, accepting that value theory makes me a better person and helps me to, to be more excellent. And so even if it's the case that I don't have sufficient evidence, I still think it's good for me to believe it. And Epictetus even says this, he says, if I had to be deceived into believing that external things don't really matter and that virtue is all that matter, I would consent to that deception. I'd be happy to be deceived about that if it would ha let me 
you know, have more peace and tranquility and be more virtuous, be more excellent. And he says, like, whether you want, would, would consent to it yourself, I'll leave that up to you. But that's the choice that I would make. And I'm, I'm very much persuaded by that. Right. Well, I'm going to give you one other example. And it's also from Martin Gardner's book of philosophy essays. There's one called Why I Am Not a Solipsist. And he actually thinks it's pretty hard to come up with good arguments against it. Solipsism being the view that you exist, or actually, for me to be a solipsist would mean that I think I am the only thing that exists and everything else, apparently, what appears to be everything else is just manifestations of my own mind, not any kind of external reality I'm interacting with. So he considers a number of arguments against it that he finds unsatisfying and he falls back on, well, I think I'm a better person if I reject that view. Yeah. So, um, I think that the idea that, uh, you could believe something or not believe it because of sort of what it says about you or how it's going to shape your character and how it's going to shape your conduct. I think it's, it's perfectly legitimate. And Socrates says something along the, these lines in the Mino, um, in response to, to Mino's paradox, um, he says, look, like this will make us braver and bolder if we sort of just go for inquiry instead of just settling with skepticism and being like, oh, we can't know anything. Well, no, let's let's just take it on faith that we can get knowledge or we can make progress on understanding things um, because that will, will make us more excellent. Um, it'll make us less lazy. It'll make us braver. That's the real justification for it. And yeah, I think I'm sympathetic to that. You know, I am too, and I'm glad you brought that up because Mino was discussed so much, and that bit at the end there, hardly at all. But I think that's actually the culmination of that dialogue. Yeah, man. I mean, plug for my book that's coming out sometime later this year that I'm co-authoring with my, my buddy Nick Dema. That's one of our, our key chapters. So we're basically arguing that Plato accepts a type of pragmatism that's just based on this sort of idea that truth is important, epistemic norms are important, but there's a limit to that. And in some situations, it's good to, to violate epistemic norms in order to be a more virtuous person. And the Mino example is, is one of our main examples. Also in the Phaedo, like when Socrates is, is facing having to drink the hemlock and he's willing to dabble in a type of, of self-deception or at least be sort of doing some motivated reasoning to try to, to make a convincing case for the afterlife um, and for the, the, the immortality of his soul because he's trying to make sure that when the moment comes, he can be completely fearless and, and do what needs to be done without sort of looking cowardly or, or moaning or bawling or anything, but just do it in a, in a virtuous way. Because the stakes were so high, um, he was willing to not be completely philosophical and not be completely upholding every epistemic norm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's the Mino, there's the Pedo, there's, there's lots of examples that I don't think get discussed enough where, where Plato actually endorses this type of, of pragmatic approach. That is very interesting. Uh, I will be interested to read that. So we've given a lot of examples on behalf of James. We haven't, I think, talked about any of James's examples except for belief in God. Now, one of them that comes up is the, the offensive one. Some people take offense to this, which is the guy who believes 
this woman is going to say yes to marrying him and that allows him to propose in the most, um, I don't know, compelling manner. But I think actually I can come up with a better case of this kind of thing. And you can, you've probably already thought of it. It's the case of you're doing some sporting event and you need to sort of like rev yourself up and get excited and like, yeah, I'm going to win. And that actually increases the likelihood of your winning, even though if you were to just step aside and look at the statistics, you're like, yeah, we're probably, we're probably going to get our asses kicked out here, aren't we? Yeah. No, I mean, this is something I think we've all had experience with. And, you know, athletics is a, a place where I've had that experience many times. But even something like, you know, you're taking an exam and maybe you um, you forgot about it. And so you didn't study enough. But like once it's time to sit down, like you're better off if you can sort of deceive yourself into thinking, you know what, I can still pull it off. Like having confidence matters, like it, it actually affects your performance in any endeavor. And you can have you have more confidence, obviously, if, if you get yourself in the frame of mind that, you know, I am good at this or I, I, I am going to succeed. So I think that that's actually pretty uncontroversial that if you're trying to succeed in some endeavor. It's good to have maybe more confidence than the evidence would would warrant. At the same time, of course, you have to be careful because you don't want to be overconfident and you don't want to keep yourself from actually doing the preparation. So I don't want to get into a habit of saying, oh. I'm so good at this that I no longer have to prepare. I don't have to work hard. But as long as you're actually preparing and working hard to be good at the craft, um, I think it makes perfect sense. It's, it's completely justified to develop that mindset of, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely succeed at this, even if you don't have full confidence. I mean, trying to make it an academic philosophy, I have always had this mindset that, like, I'm going to make it, even though, like, you know, there's each step of the, the way there's been evidence, you know, mathematical evidence that like, I probably won't make it. And I, but I think that's one reason why I'm so far, I'm still in this profession is that I like, I refuse to sort of let the objective doom and gloom keep me from, from being confident. And the confidence helps you work harder. It helps you perform. You know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's completely useful. So yeah, I, I totally accept that. Right. So we're at the end of the dialogue now at this point between us, and we've considered Clifford and we've considered James, and they're paired as like opponents, but actually we can see, I think, the outlines of a kind of synthesis or ways in which we might combine them, right? Because Clifford considers very different cases than James considers, and he might have some allowance for non-evidential beliefs in some of these cases, right? So you might think that in the case of belief in God, where there's the will to belief can come into play when you've got these two live options, you might think that either belief is based on sufficient evidence. So what, what do you think about that proposal for trying to bring them together? I mean, I'm not sure what Clifford would say about the religious belief, because I take it that James is one of his points is that the agnostic position you are still sort of taking a position there. And so there's no way of avoiding the question. And so like the, the policy of epistemic normativity that Clifford is advocating doesn't tell automatically in favor of agnosticism or atheism. Is that the idea? Oh, actually, I'm glad that you raised the point of the unavoidability of taking a stance is also one of, one of James's uh, criteria here. 
for when, yeah. when when you're allowed to exercise your will to believe. The thought is, couldn't Clifford just say, in principle, that okay, you should never ever believe anything on insufficient evidence, but then say that in the kind of cases where James is permissive, he can say both beliefs are based on sufficient evidence. There's no belief here that is based on insufficient evidence. So I'm wondering whether Clifford could allow that inconsistent beliefs might each be based on sufficient evidence, right? So Yeah, but, but I wonder in the case of God, I, I guess I don't see how you could say both having a positive belief in God is based on sufficient evidence. Well, I mean, James is assuming that you can be at a point in which you can reasonably be at least agnostic, right? Yeah, right. So the idea would be that the probability of God existing, I guess it's roughly like 50-50 from James' perspective. Is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, Pascal says in particular that it's 50-50, but, or he begins his, his wager from, with that presupposition. Now you might just think, no, it's not even close, but su supposing if it is, then you could make this move. Because it's sounding like what you're just saying is that, well, belief in God just isn't even a live option for me. So James is wouldn't even apply to you in that case. Yeah, right. I don't I don't think that'd be what I want to say. So yeah, it's a live option, but I guess wouldn't Clifford want to say that if you affirm God's existence or you deny God's existence, both of those are going beyond the evidence and so you should be agnostic. Going beyond the evidence isn't necessarily inconsistent with Clifford, I don't think, to the letter. I think it's based on insufficient evidence. That's the thing that Clifford forbids, right? If it's 50% chance that God exists and 50% chance that he doesn't exist, does Clifford say that you are allowed to just choose either one, whichever one? I, I don't know. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say it, but he doesn't quite go so far as to say evidence has got to be the only determining factor of any of your beliefs. He says, don't believe on insufficient evidence, but he doesn't say evidence is the only consideration whatsoever. He uses rhetoric that leads you in the direction of thinking that, but I think the door is open here. Yeah, possibly. I wish we could ask him. Um, yeah, it could be that if the point was pressed to him in that way, he would concede, and maybe that would be a point where, again, like the disagreement is not quite as deep as it seems. But yeah, and as I said before, like it's important to keep in mind that James agrees with Clifford for like a big percentage of our beliefs. James, I think, accepts Clifford's view. He just thinks that there are these exceptions. The interesting question for me, or one of the interesting questions is, how much would Clifford respond to James by saying, look, if you make these ex too many exceptions, then you're inevitably gonna get to the point where you're no longer like a, a reliable epistemic agent. And now, the costs outweigh the benefits because, again, you're sort of cultivating bad habits. Can you take the, the, the James approach without it leaking out into other domains of your life where now all of a sudden you're kind of reckless epistemically? Can you make these exceptions but still generally hold on to your sound epistemic practices? Yeah, I think he might actually push James in exactly that way because although he appeals to consequentialist reasoning, to support his view in places. He's also very suspicious of exceptions and things that are not based on strict principles. Right, right. Well, do you have anything further to add to this discussion? My sort of verdict, like I, like I said, I, I used to be Team Clifford, but now I'm more Team James. I just think that there are some of these important ethical questions and existential issues about like the meaning of life and 
if you believe that the universe is divinely ordered, which I believe it is now. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly, I don't even know, I haven't even figured out like what mental state I'm in when I am praying to Zeus, but I know that it's making my life better. And so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, wait, wait, you, yeah, you, pray, you pray to Zeus? Yeah, every night. What do you say? Um, basically, you know, I focus on this, the, the last chapter of the Enchiridion. Epictetus says, like, he always keep these things in mind. So one of them is that the verse from that poem, I'm not sure, like, where the original source is, but it's like the lead me Zeus, lead me destiny to the goal I was long ago assigned. Basically sort of saying, like, I'm going to trust my, my fate and I'm going to accept it. And I'm, I'm going to accept what happens without complaining. And then there's, there's another, another line where I talk about making this commitment to never criticize Zeus and his gifts and never to avoid like my basic obligations and the essential tasks of life and just to have sort of an attitude of acceptance. Those are the sort of things that I think are really important for, for living a good life. Now, it's not, what I like about it is it's not like, not asking a god to like do things for me it's not asking for favors and i'm not hoping i don't believe in an afterlife i'm not hoping for getting into paradise at some point it's more about just training myself to have gratitude and to accept the things that are beyond my power to have any control over and to to be strong and to to always trust reason and to try to be virtuous and i think that whether it's just a metaphor whether it's like a a useful fiction, whatever it is, I think it's helpful. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at with that now. Well, that's very interesting. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for talking to me today. Sure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.